This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, there is a scientific reason why we get burnt out. The world of weird things with Greg Fish shares research that can explain why we feel physically ill when we overwork, overthink, and just push through. Here in Canada, we Canadians love to say, sorry, but do we actually mean it? Marjorie Ingall, co-author with Susan McCarthy of Sorry, 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 The Case for Good Apologies, tells us how we can put meaning behind our apologies and why our apologies can fall flat when we don't. They don't work. And are you okay with sports betting? Oh, that gets me so lit up. I don't like sports betting. How about backyards? All of this and more on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Weird. It got very weird. I don't understand. Welcome to the world of weird Weird. things with Greg Fish. Grr, fishy. Yeah, this is this is just another day and ends in why for me listening to people be very upset at their computers. But you know, if exactly. technology worked the way that it was supposed to, then I honestly wouldn't have a job, would I now? Well, it's true, but technology, my technology works perfect until Microsoft gets involved. That's really what it boils down to. Microsoft is a is a very complicated case, let me put it this way. They have they're very good at developer tools. But when it comes to consumer tools, they are, they're there. Mm-hmm. Well, they do. That's... And I'm, I'm actually, while we're chatting, I'm searching how to turn off my auto updates on my Microsoft updater because this is driving me bananas. Anyway, uh, I can't be the only one who gets mad and gurs at my computer. Um, regardless, I'm sitting here a little different than the intention of this conversation that we've got on worldofweirdthings.com, which, by the way, the Substack, which is like a newsletter that you can sign up for, is going to be at shiftheads.ca on the Facebook group. Fishy, I, I'm sitting here, and then I'm stewing on this, and then to a point where I give up, which is not quite the same as the intention of the topic, but it's also not completely different either, either is it? No, not completely different at all because, hey, troubleshooting stuff, if you don't think that I get mad at my computer or that my computer doesn't do stupid stuff or I don't do stupid stuff to my computer, you would be very mistaken. And then sometimes I have to spend hours fixing something very complicated or very elaborate. Like, for example, uh, one of the things I've always hated um, on Windows machines is that certain tools that I've used, you have to install them in very specific order. And if you mess it up, then you have to basically go back and clean everything out and start over. Mm -hmm. But no one tells you that. You have to figure that out on your own. So all the research, all of that all of that effort, you're just you're finally done setting up your entire environment and all of your tools. But then you're like, you know what? I am too tired to deal with this. I am physically exhausted. Yes, I've done nothing but sit in front of my computer for the past, you know, seven, eight hours. But I am just absolutely beat. And we know is, that about people. We know is that, that where we kind of say like we're just fried, not in like yeah. the highway, but like I'm just fried right now. Is that similar to what you're talking about? Oh, that's even more similar than you might think so actually yes so actually when you're doing and i'm sure everyone has experienced this when you spend a lot of time doing a lot of cognitive work you're trying to plan some very complicated trip you're trying to you know you're trying to do some really convoluted logistics you're trying to sort out a bunch of plans you're doing a lot of stuff at work you're we need to come up with ideas this really deep focus really deep thinking about five six seven hours you're probably feeling like oh my god i you i you can just 
just put a fork in me. I'm done. I'm done. Mm. I can't. I can't. Mm-hmm. I'm. 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 I'm tired. But here's the thing. Why are you tired? Why are you physically tired from mental labor? And mm. we know that this. We know that this happens. We observe it in people. We know that about five after five six hours of concentration, your rate of mistakes starts going up very very rapidly. And the more time you spend trying to do mental work past that five six hour mark the more mistakes you're going to end up making, which is why sometimes people will work for 12 hours programming, coding, writing, and then they come back and they're like, wow, this is crap. I wasted a lot of time yesterday. I really should have stopped. So scientists know this. They've observed this countless times and they had a very simple question. Why? What is actually happening that is making us physically tired? How is this? How does the mechanism actually work? Well, finally, there's a study that offers an explanation and that explanation is that your brain is actually trying to prevent you from frying it that makes sense so it does work it is a thing like it's legitimate like i feel fried right now i would like to draw attention for everyone can catch it on the podcast of a conversation we had a couple of days ago with an air traffic controller she spoke about this uh her name is kendra and Kendra had said that as an air traffic controller, we can only be focused for so long on the radar screens before we have to take a break. And then she has to leave the room for a period of time and go do something else before she can come back and then can refocus again. And I remember um, in our conversation, you know, she said specifically, she's like, I don't have to, I have to be back on the screens by six. And now I do assume that she was off the screens for a couple of hours. So there must be some science there that says, hey, you are capped out at X number of minutes, typically on a typical day. Therefore, um, that's where the limit, you just hit the limit right there. Yep. And that's and that seems to be exactly what it is. And I can, well, I can't relate to the stress of an air traffic controller because that literally takes years off your life, as we know. <laughs> uh, but I've definitely worked on on prototypes where I'm just like, I can't. Why can't I solve this problem? I know that I know that I was able to solve this problem. I need, but I need to physically walk away from it. And what's happening is there is a buildup of something called glutamate in your prefrontal cortex. Now, your prefrontal cortex is what helps you make executive decisions. It's what um, it what it's what allows you to carry out your basic executive functions and figure out what you need to do and how you need to do it. Um, and it's also really important for that neurotransmitter to flow through your brain to activate all of your memories and recognition and long-term skills and all the all the auxiliary neurons that help with that and activate all those pathways in your mind that you actually need to carry out the tasks in front of you. But it is a... Ex- it's it's meant to excite your brain. It's meant to make your synapses fire more. But the thing is, if you keep fi- if those synapses keep firing, they'll get damaged. And a massive excess buildup of glutamate is also found in people with neurodegenerative diseases. Now, it doesn't seem to cause the diseases, but it seems to be a contributing factor because it's found in Alzheimer's patients, Huntington's patients. Parkinson's patients, uh, dementia patients. Uh, if you if there's a neurodegenerative disease, there is that, that lack of regulation of 
glutamate. And that is what seems to be happening when you're starting to feel tired you're from, from mental labor. Your body is noticing that buildup in the prefrontal cortex and is basically sending a signal to you, stop. That's enough. You're gonna you're gonna fry something. Just just walk away. Hmm. Okay, so this is cool. So one of the texts that Trucker Dan just said, and I think he's on the same page that you're on with this fishy, he says, I'd like to add this point. The human brain consumes a staggering amount of energy just by even idling. It physically drains our blood of chemicals when we are thinking. It's kind of what you're speaking about. You're literally running out of gas, and people who are high performers often will eat more sugar, which also is one of the uh, the chemical ingredients to that your brain needs and consume more sugar because their brains consume it on their behalf. Um, have you crossed the paths with that in this work? There is definitely complementary work to this. This study did not really go into the into those particular details. Um, but I can I can definitely I can definitely see it, um, and and basically you know your your body is essentially a meat suit for your brain. Uh, your brain takes up the majority of your um, a, a great deal of your body's focus. Um, and majority of the energy is really just to you know obviously keep all of your all of your muscles moving, all of your organs going. But a not insignificant percentage of your body's energy requirement goes to your brain. Um, and also your brain is a, is a very, fairly delicate instrument, even though it's actually kind of really messy. Like a lot of people kind of like to picture that our brain works a bit like a computer and it really doesn't. It's, it's just, it, if it works like a computer, it's like one of the earliest computers. There's just a lot of wires going into all sorts of different places <laughs> and cassette deck on the side. Yeah, yeah, basically. It's it's kind of just a very just a very jury rigged computer if that. It's it's um uh, it, it doesn't actually like so it, it, stop comparing it to a computer is really kind of a kind of a, a a big takeaway from all of this. But uh what is similar there is that yeah, you can um your body understands when you're overtaxing your mind just like it understands how you're overtaxing your muscles and just like when you're about to pull something when you're about to throw out your back when you're about to tear a muscle your body sends a painful signal or there's a mm. massive buildup of lactic acid and your muscles are burning so it actually makes sense that your body would also try to protect your brain in this way yeah. uh, because really one of the big things that we're starting to understand with all of these studies that are trying to look into the function of the brain and the limits of the brain and what and how the brain really works on a daily basis when you overtax it, when you run it normally, um, is that there's a, it's, it's a very elaborate process of, um, of the, of, of cleanup and of use of different molecules and chemicals and enzymes to, to do your, to do your work. And then you have to take a break. So all of the byproducts of that can be cleaned up. And if you don't do that, you will damage your brain. So for example, um, Everyone talks about neurons, so everyone knows that the brain is full of neurons. But neurons, but very few people talk about glial cells, and glial cells are actually super important because they're the custodians. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the custodians of your brain. All of the stuff that the neurons produce by consuming all the neurotransmitters, by breaking down all the chemicals, uh, by t- by making use of all the molecules that are emitted, 
they build up tau proteins, they build up um, they, they they build up these high levels of glutamate, and then the glial cells reuptake all of that and they clean it out. They they transform into something that your brain can use again. And if you keep interfering with that cycle, you will hurt yourself over the long term. And that's the and and that's and that's the really important takeaway here. You have to take care of yourself, not and it's not just you have to take care of yourself like, oh, I need to eat right and I need to exercise, I need to go for mental health walks. You also need to think of it from the standpoint of I need to know when to walk away. I need to know when to take a break. I need to get my sleep. Uh, because you're not your body is not a machine. You are not a machine. You have your limits. And here's the other thing. If you treat your body well and you treat your brain well, you're going to live longer. You're going to have a higher quality of life. You're going to avoid some of the unpleasant issues that come with aging. Um, and you're just going to you're just going to enjoy your life more and you're going to feel much better in the end. OK, well, that's good sign. Now, you talked about this sort of noticing it and taking care of your, your brain and your body and being aware of it. I mean, this is where that feeling of running out of gas, I get it how your brain takes care of your body. Therefore your body sort of is taking care of your brain, but we go through a lot when this, this feeling and we tend to push through, right? Like I'm a hard worker. Um, I, you know, no stopping, even sort of pushing beyond the point of where we're listening to our body. Even if you think of just tension in your shoulders, like how many times you hear that, right? Like, ah, oh, my shoulders are so tense from sitting at my desk. That could be one. Of, I mean, that could be bad posture, let's be honest. But it also could be that you're pushing through, um, you know, an awful lot of stuff that, that you probably shouldn't be pushing through. What happens when we keep pushing and we push it off and we, um, I guess it it's essentially becomes breakdown of some sort, illness, yeah, that's that's exactly what happens. You in, you increase your risk for neurodegenerative diseases. You increase your risk for different chronic conditions if you keep pushing through. Now, again, I am I'm just going to come clean. I'm a huge hypocrite about this. Oh, me too. Yeah. But but reading a lot of these studies and and looking at a lot of these outcomes and the fact that the literature about this is is getting so consistent and so reliable it may, it's really making me rethink how I approach things. And, okay, yes, I'm a hard worker. I can push through. But the thing is, the science also says that when I push through, I'm, I've hit, I'm past the point of diminishing returns. I've hit an area where my mistakes are going to rapidly start increasing. I'm actually, and if I keep pushing through past that, there's a very high likelihood that I'm actually going to do worse work and it's much better for me to take that break, to walk away for the day, or to walk away for for the for the time being, and get back to it later, and then do much higher quality work. Because the the idea here is not like the the, the idea that oh we have to do an eight hour day. Well, that hmm. that's arbitrary. Eight hour days come from uh come from kind of like the 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 old union saying of eight hours for work, eight hours for sleep, eight hours for recreation. That's how that the day has been arbitrarily broken down that way. Our bodies, our biology didn't get that memo because our biology doesn't live by the standards of the industrial world. Our body lives by circadian rhythms, by metabolic rhythms, by metabolic patterns. 
So we need to start listening to those and we should be basing our work days around that. And we shouldn't be priding ourselves for killing ourselves for work. We should be looking at our health and at our bodies as a long-term investment. Because if you want to if you want to work hard, if you want to achieve a lot of things, you should plan that work around what your body can and cannot do mm-hmm. and around and to make sure that you're taking advantage of the peak is just like you want you don't want to ride a car on fumes you don't want to ride a car um into the ground by not changing the oil saying oh you know it'll be fine it can do it can do more on this you know on this dirty oil yeah it can but you're also clogging up your engine you're you're hurting things in there that you're supposed to be hurting so if you really want to think of your body as a machine you need to take care of it and you need to not and you need to know not to push it past its limits too often because it's just going to break down well here's how i'm a hypocrite with it um actually before i say that i want to say um Les from Hamilton says, I would argue your body and your brain are machines. They just need maintenance like your car. And I think that you're bang on, Les. I mean, I think they distinctly need two different kinds of maintenance, and they definitely need maintenance. Um, Ron says, Dan, Trucker Dan is bang on. Jolt and Twinkies work for a short period of time. Complex carbohydrates work best, or you will break down proteins and muscle. Then fatigue is inevitable. These are all great po- uh, points. Thanks, guys. Um, the... The thing that I will, I'm going to confess to it, because then I think that that sort of sets example, like you said, about pushing through it. And Ryan can concur to this, is that um, how many times have I worked in the last three years, Ryan, to the point of where I go on vacation, and then usually the day or day before I go on vacation, I end up sick, and I'm sick for my whole vacation, and then usually come back just as I'm recovering. I mean, you can probably count it, you probably need two hands to count that. Nine times out of 10. It's almost a guarantee. Half the guarantee. So that's not good. And then you work until your body gives up on you, really, is kind of what what that is. And that's not good. And and then you collapse and you're done. So I'm absolutely a hypocrite, Fish. I guess it probably presents differently. Does it present in a way for you? Oh, it definitely does. If I just like completely overwork myself, there's a couple days where I just get up and I feel like someone hit me with a baseball bat over the head. And for the next two days, I feel like I'm sick. I feel like I have a like I have a bad cold, and then I I'm forced to take a rest because I literally can't concentrate on anything. It's it's difficult for me to read things. It's difficult for me to focus on things. And but after about 36, 48 hours, I'm like back to normal, and I've figured out that's basically my body's way of telling me, "Hey, you idiot, take a freaking break." Yeah. Um, and and so I, I've done that enough times um, that I kind of just just started thinking I, I want to avoid that. This is a deeply unpleasant experience. And on top of that, uh, a lot of times that I'm pushing things through, I'm not really getting much of a utility out of it because a lot of the work that I do, especially um, in my field, it really depends on like the quality of my thought and the quality of creativity, not the amount of code that I write. Uh, but but the but the quality of my designs, understanding how to use the right tools in the right place, um, and I, I know that there are fields where this is impossible. I know there are fields where people have to do a lot of physical labor, or they have to do a lot of uh, labor that is timed and involves a lot of mental and physical coordination. Um, like I mean, I'm sure Trucker Dan is pretty exhausted driving for extended hours because that takes. You know, you have to you, you have to react to all the things on the road. You have to pay a lot of attention. Like, 
you but the bottom line again is we start we need to start planning a lot of our work and how we um how we have people working around what the what their bodies can and cannot do right. so we can get the most out of ourselves well quality versus quantity and i'd, I'd like to recycle something that my counselor said to me once was that um she learned young in her career she said why do you always work until you're sick and you can't work or you, you have to take a break? Like you can't work anymore. You work through being sick until you can't work anymore. And she said, I, I learned young in my career with advice from a doctor that said the way that people will do it is the minute they start to feel sick, they'll take a week off. Then they never actually get terribly sick. Right. And I do the opposite. I push right through. So if that resonates for you, there's a lot more to be had here. The article itself, you want to read it. It's also a part of a newsletter for the world of weird things. It's called a Substack. It's at shiftheads.ca, the link. So you can read the article in its entirety. It's there for you. And you can also subscribe to that newsletter and you will get it in advance. So you can contribute to this conversation as well. Greg Fish and the world of weird things. Thanks for being here, brother. Always a pleasure. Uh, you take your time off. We're going to keep working now because. I can't get up and leave before the show's over, unlike you seem to be able to do in your job. Well, I appreciate that quite a bit. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thanks for not overtaxing me. This is the Shift Podcast. Well, I'm sorry to tell you that our next guest is going to be sorry to be here. That's not the case at all. Marjorie Ingall is here, and we're going to chat about being sorry. Now, this comes up because of some celebrity stories, but we're not really going to talk about celebrity stories. I'm going to use it as an example, though, to get into how we say sorry in our lives every day. Uh, In our lives every day, we go through moments where we screw up. In fact, one of the best courses I ever took in my life was a course about how to plan breakdown into your day. That really is a remedy for sorry allows you to be in the integrity of yourself, of the things we go through, but mistakes happen. We screw up. We let people down. That's real life. So we need to navigate not being perfect. We need to navigate. How do we navigate? How do we figure out and be empathetic on the mistakes? So that's incredibly important. Now with this, the Danny Masterson rape case out of the States has had Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis write letters to the court talking about their time with him. Now they've come out and they've apologized, but now the sort of the court of a public opinion has gone back in time to old things that they've said and all this stuff. It's a big fat mess. And it's a good example of, frankly, not being uh, accountable to your actions uh, in writing letters and being, you know, aware of read the room to be simple. And yet here we are, um, in our own lives, we like to be critical of these famous people, but really we're not doing much better. Now we're not here to talk about the, um, that case in particular, we're not here to talk about the things that were done in that case, other than the empathy for the people that have gone through it. And, um, but we don't know how to say, I'm sorry, Marjorie, I'm sorry for taking so long to get to you. (laughs) (laughs) I forgive you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, to a degree, we can learn from bad celebrity apologies in that, we can learn how much better we can do than these famous people. I think that's where the instruction instructiveness lies, not in being able to just rip them apart. Yeah. But uh, a thing that I think that um, the Ashton and Mila apology got wrong and most celebrity apologies get wrong. Jimmy Fallon before that is they apologize for their intent, the intent 
and not the impact. Yeah. Um, and that's very when good. I, as regular human beings, we don't want to say things like uh, we would never want to think that people would say that we, which is what celebrity apologies come out as. We want to say we are sorry, not we're sorry if, not we're sorry. But, um, you know, with Ashton and Mila saying we support victims in that intense fake sounding way when the thing that they are apologizing for is writing letters to support a perpetrator, mm -hmm. um, you know, using the passive voice, which is another thing that people do in bad apologies, you know, the pain that was caused by the letters that were written by us, you know, we automatically hear that and we know that this isn't a sincere apology. If you can't, and one of the things that I think my co-writer uh, on Sorry, 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 uh, Susan McCarthy and I say that maybe differs from some crisis communication person or PR person is we say, if you're not sorry, don't apologize. Yeah, well, and let's, I think we should be clear because in most cases, these celebrities are not actually making an apology. They're, they're mitigating business failure and managing right. branding, right? They're not really apologizing. They're managing the situation for their best benefit. Yet we yeah. as humans are thinking, well, that did they apologize? So we're actually talking apples and oranges, really? Let me sure. say that, right? And um, that's fair. I think the best function for celebrity apologies is for us to go, you know, I can do so much better than that. Um, yeah. Sometimes parasocial relationships are, you know, gratifying and fun. And sometimes, you know, if you're genuinely hurt by a celebrity issuing a bad apology, I think maybe it's helpful for you. You know, if uh, if someone perhaps is um, a recent victim of a violent crime, um, uh, you know, going into a news blackout with Danny Masterson's friends defending him might be healthier for you. Yeah. Well, and uh, you talked about the impact and, and just to use that as an example before we get into the real life of this stuff is really, if you think about it, any other storyline, there's a couple of people that were asked by his family to write a letter to the judge um, and they may not have known that side of him. I don't know. Uh, maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. And so what a crossroads is a person to be in where the family and you don't know any of this side of this person and the family's asking you say, can you just say what you, what you think of the guy? Um, and that's a, if we could be empathetic to anybody who gets put in a situation where, where, where they don't know, then that's probably the point that you're speaking of where you should say, well, the way I know him is not what this is about. So maybe I should just sit back and be quiet in this scenario, Absolutely. Right? right? Absolutely. Um, okay, now the book, Sorry, 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 is uh, quite amazing. Now your co-author, for the sake of acknowledging uh, Susan McCarthy. Thank and you. Saying, All right, Susan. Woo. Um, so making apologies. When we walk into the room, what's the biggest, most common apology we make? Probably being late, I suppose. Yeah. Going for coffee. Um, yeah. Um, you know, there certainly... You know, there's a whole cottage industry, particularly telling women not to say they're sorry. Oh, women apologize too much. Don't say, sorry, I'm late. Say, thank you for your patience. Don't say, um, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, can't, I can't think of anything. But a thing that I would say is we all have natural speech patterns. And if your natural speech pattern is to say, I'm sorry, I feel like making 
women second guess themselves and say, oh no, I can't do up talk anymore. I can't do vocal fry anymore. I can't say I'm sorry too much. It's paralyzing. Mm -hmm. And there are also consequences for not being perceived as attuned to other people's emotions. And there's a lot of research on when women, particularly women of color, are deemed insufficiently apologetic. There are real consequences to that in their personal lives, in the workplace. So you know what? If your natural inclination is to say sorry, great. The one time I think, uh, you know, we read all these, um, all this advice from executive coaches on talking about not saying sorry. And the one I really liked was don't say sorry to bother you at work. Say is now a good time. Mm -hmm. Because Absolutely. why apologize for yeah. asking for, you know, help doing your job better exactly. and help, help you're helping somebody else right now. Yeah. Don't apologize well, for that. Don't apologize for 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 doing something with intention ever. Yeah. I don't think you should ever um, apologize for doing something with intention. Um, if the impact of that is problematic, then maybe you could apologize somewhere along the line if that's what yeah. it is. But you are in a situation with apologies where you are expressing yourself naturally. But sometimes we say it too much, Marjorie. It becomes such a crutch in our speech that we say it so often that people don't believe it anymore if right. they're around us. How do you navigate the natural expression of who you are? And maybe yeah. you're a, a softer person and you say sorry a lot, but at the same time, you say it maybe all the time because you allows you to gloss over the emotion of what's happening. Right. Well, look, our field is apologies. And we would say that apologies are acts. They're not words. And when you're just saying, I'm sorry, that's an incomplete act. The rest of it is what steps are you going to take to ensure that the thing that you're apologizing for is unlikely to recur? What reparations are you going to make to make it up to the person you've wronged? Uh, I think a lot of times when we're, we're annoyed by the I'm sorry, it's because it's this reflex and the these words that don't come with changed behavior and mm. that's what we're really looking for from an apology sincerity sincerity and action yeah. not i may mean it every time i say i'm sorry but i the you know we say that there are six and a half steps to a good apology and they are relevant whether you are you know a seven-year-old who has chased a classmate with a booger or you are a head of a country who kept having parties during COVID lockdown, or whether you're a country that has done wrong, or whether you are a spouse who keeps forgetting to unload the dishwasher. Number one, say the words, I'm sorry, or I apologize. Don't say, I regret. Regret is about how I feel. And a good apology is about putting the other person's feelings front and center. To say the thing you did, not what happened or that situation from last Tuesday. It's really hard to name a thing and naming things is important. Uh, number three, show that you understand why it was hurtful to the other, other person. Another thing we often make fun of with celebrity apologies is it's all about, I feel so awful, embarrassed, humiliated. I'm so angry at myself. Shut up, not about you, think <laughs> about the other person. Uh, number four, Offer explanations if they're helpful, but be really careful not to make excuses. Number five, what steps are you taking to ensure this won't happen again? Tell the other person. Number six, if it's possible to make reparations, make reparations. And six and a half, which I, I feel very confident you're going to agree with me about, is listen. Let the other person have their say. Yeah. Huge.
Okay, so all of that's pretty raw, Marjorie. Like you, that is ask. That is an ask of a human to dig into a place of themselves that they might uh, not be so comfortable with. Part of the reason why we gloss over. I'm sorry all the time. You know what I love? I'm sorry when I say gloss it over. I feel like I need to declare this. I love I'm sorry when people are in crowds, especially in Canada. They're like, they're like, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I love oh, how you sorry. say it. I just right? love, you know, I, I'm the most cliched American saying I love the way you say I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry, <laughs> eh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but at the I same time, it. we do gloss over it. And um, that's a pretty raw ask to say, I'm going to hold myself into integrity right in front of you and listen to yeah. how this impacted that's why you. That's, that's why the subtitle of our book is The Case for Good Apologies, is that's freaking hard. It is hard. We, we, you know, when people talk about apologies as an act of weakness, we're like, are you kidding? They are A good apology is such an act of strength and bravery and vulnerability. Um, you know, when I have a serious apology to make, I actually call Susan and I rehearse it with her because it's hard. It's hard for me. I mean, I wish I could say that writing this book has made me better and writing the book has made me know better, but I'm not sure it always makes me do better. Right. Rehearsing yeah, right. Helps. It's not yeah. a default. It's not a, you know. It's not. It's not natural. Our brains are wired to make us see ourselves as a hero of our own story and being able to apologize well means being able to acknowledge that you've been the villain in somebody else's story. Mm -hmm. How does this land for you? I'm sorry. I apologize. Please accept my apology. Or will you accept my apology? Do you find any distinctive helpfulness inside well, either I, of those, good or bad? I do not like, will you accept my apology? Um, because we think that um, forgiveness is a gift to be granted. And it's rude. To, your mom taught you it's rude to ask for a gift. Um, I think saying, I hope you can forgive me is a slightly different formulation that is better. But, you know, we, we often hear from schools that, you know, I love the idea of this responsive classroom where kids are taught how to problem solve on their own when they get into a conflict with a friend. But I, I don't like it when it ends with, will you forgive me? Because it's really putting somebody else on the spot. You know, you could say, I hope I can show you that I mean this, or, you know, I hope one day you'll be able to forgive me. But I think putting someone on the spot is a mm. lot to ask. I understand. Yeah, I guess that my assumption of that is that uh, they get to choose when they want to respond. Forgiveness yeah. is not something that's on demand right. for sure. Um, they get right. to choose right. that. Cool. Totally. Um, how do you fumble into this? You, you screw something up so bad that you were like, <laughs> I need to write a book about uh, it? Uh, probably in being born Jewish, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, we look every every year. It is part of Jewish tradition at the high holidays to think about repentance and to think about apologies and to think about making things right, both both with you know God and with your fellow human beings. And I was a journalist in the Jewish press for a very long time and was asked to write about apologies a lot. Uh, I also uh, gave birth to an extraordinarily fierce older child who was totally feral and the act of teaching this child to apologize taught me a lot um teaching this child to see the value of being kind uh was and uh and now i mean she's absolutely amazing she's uh delightful and thinks about other people's concerns all the time but uh yeah she was a monster child who spent all of pre-k you say pre-K in Canada? Is that not really? That? But yeah, I know what it, we know what it you means because we're we're neighbors. Spent all of kindergarten in the consequences chair. Um, 
So I was really interested in the subject. Susan had written a humor piece for Salon about sorry if apologies and was really surprised at the traction it had. And we were longtime friends and we wanted to collaborate on something. And so we've been doing sorrywatch.com, your favorite apology watchdog website, uh, since 2012. And we're not bored. I mean, it's endlessly interesting. Well, and there's in the world of celebrities, an endless supply of examples, I suppose, for you yes. to, to lead well, by. We also, we also like to look at research. Both of us um, have a background in health and science writing. So we like looking at research on apologies. Um, we like looking at, um, you know, apologies in different fields. You know, it, here, certainly medicine is notorious for doctors do not apologize because right. they think they're going to be sued. Well, insurance, um, there's that. That's, that's again, managing business, right? Managing risk. It's, yeah, yeah. Um, and we like um, looking at songs about apology, um, art about apology. We're both really interested in kintsugi, the art of fixing broken Japanese pottery with those lines of oh, gold. Yeah. Yeah, so you then, see where the break was, yeah. but you also, the thing is stronger than it mm. was before. I love that. It's beautiful. Um, so... You said practice. That gets yeah. me. How do you practice an apology with a friend before you go into a scenario? Um, I know that I tend to get bogged down in our step four, which is offering explanation if necessary, but not excuses. Um, so I will practice. If I know I have a hard apology to make, I actually practice it out loud to my cat and I'll start over. If I get it wrong, I'll do it with Susan. Um, a lot of times it doesn't need to be that big a deal. You know, you can just text if it's a minor thing and it's a good friend who, you know, knows that your intentions are basically good. I think just quickly texting someone because you also don't want to make I think, you know, in before we started talking on air, we talked about you don't want to make somebody uncomfortable by like over apologizing because you're also making it about you when you do that. And then you have, you put the other person in this position of having to soothe you. Oh, it's okay. It wasn't that big a deal. And like, that's exhausting for everybody. So if it's a little thing, just send a text. It doesn't have to be a massive, you know, to do, but if you do something really wrong, I think practicing is good. I think even writing a letter, you know, it's, we don't, we don't write letters anymore. And when you get a letter on like nice stationery, like somebody went to the trouble of finding a stamp, you know that that's sincere, right? Mm -hmm. um, Again, so it's that, that convincing true. commitment. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't think, it, I don't think there's a one size fits all solution for this because human beings are all different. Yeah, they are. And that's cool. One of the things that happens is we often get in our head that we should apologize. We get all tangled up about stuff. It's kind of like you said, you get tangled up in the explanations. Well, before you even get there inside your brain, you're all over it right? Reading, justifying it, reasons, all the things that go on. And you can say to your friend, sorry, I'm late. And yet there'd be like, I have so much work to do. I actually appreciate the extra five minutes to get caught up. Right. So right. like we, sometimes we're all caught up in needing to apologize for something. I mean, you're sure you're, you were late. Acknowledging being late is, is valuable, but the reception of it is like, dude, you do not need to apologize. You actually gave me a gift right now. And we had tangled up in all that. Totally. Um, we had, I recently had a friend from college reach out to me. I, I probably hadn't talked to him in a decade and there was something I had, he wanted to apologize for something that happened between us freshman year. And I had honestly forgotten. It was that he wanted to borrow my notes. I didn't want to give them to him. So it was right before the test. Um, he, he, I handed him the notes. He threw the notebook at me. 
it was it was bad behavior. But honestly, I had totally forgotten. And it had been weighing on him for all these years. And for him to hear from me, oh, my God, dude, I had totally forgotten that ever happened. I really appreciate you apologizing. It clearly was something that was upsetting you. And, you know, I, I want you to know that you're totally forgiven. Uh, there, one of the things that I love is there's this thing called the Zygernik effect, which is this notion that completed acts are more easily forgotten than uncompleted acts. And so if you complete this thing, if you apologize for this thing that's weighing on you, you've done yourself a huge favor because mm -hmm. you can forget it, whether or not it's accepted. If you've done the thing that was weighing on you, you can let it go. And the the, the way that this came about was um, Luma Zygernik was a social psychologist who noted that in the cafes in Berlin, where everybody would sit around drinking all day long and having their coffee and whipped cream, the waiters could remember what every table ordered until they paid the bill. And the minute they paid the bill, they couldn't tell you what anybody had ordered yeah. because the completed acts could be forgotten. That's beautiful, Armand. That's a deeply philosophical statement as yeah. well, too. Um, yeah. with that. Um, and personally, you know, maybe this is, um, this is maybe a, a faithful statement. I don't even know, but, um, forgiveness as a gift for yourself, um, versus a gift for someone else too. Right. Um, yes. being in integrity, it's often forgiveness is less about them as well in that they might ask for it, but they're, they're asking for it for themselves to relieve the burden of themselves. So people will say, well, should I forgive them? Well, can you forgive them for yourself, right? Like give yourself that, that experience of it. Just, we talk about forgiveness. So the sake to acknowledge yep. that it could be a gift for yourself as much as it is a gift for them. Absolutely. I mean, some look, some acts are unforgivable and we like to say apologies are mandatory. Forgiveness is not, mm -hmm. but if you can do it, you know, a lot of times people will say, you know, so I, what can I forgive someone who did horrible things and who is dead? I'm never going to have the conversation where I could, where he could apologize to me. And if you can imagine the apology that you'd like to get and imagine forgiving him, which was actually the subject of a book by um, the playwright, uh, Eve Ensler wrote a book called the apology about imagining forgiving her father who was passed away and who was a horrible, abusive man. Um, it was a huge gift that she could give to herself, just mm -hmm. as you said. Yeah, and you can seek out uh, all kinds of tactics with um, vision work and practice and some soulfulness or whatever it is, presence that, that you take that, that can actually get there for the, those of that have passed on that are long gone out of your life. Maybe it's not even safe to connect with them if they're still around, but you still wanna go through that process of forgiveness. Beautiful ways to go through that as well. This is cool. Um, sorry, Sorry, Sorry is the book. We're gonna lift, link it to shiftheads.ca on our Facebook group so everybody can get it and take a little look at it. And maybe if you're thinking, I got this thing that's hanging over my head, it's time for me to say I'm sorry. Maybe a bit of guidance, at least some ideas, and if not, peace of mind that you're not alone and there are ways to go about it if you're ready to do that. Uh, Marjorie, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Shane. This is The Shift Podcast. Are you, are you, are you, okay, 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 are you okay with stories that make you ponder 877-399-9898. You can share your thoughts on these stories. Are you okay with 
sports betting. Oh, boy. Well, okay. Betting on sports is fine. I don't see anything wrong with that. Gambling, Ah, whatever. Good point. I do not like the current state of sports betting. It is an epidemic. I think it's crazy how much money can be made in this industry just by like sitting on your couch. When I used to, when I thought of sports betting as a kid, I imagined people like huddled around a TV at like a casino or a bar and, 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 you know, having to leave their homes to do it. And now you can just watch Wayne Gretzky talk about, Oh, you're going to make some money here. And then, and then you lose all your money. So it seems like it's a bit out of control and underregulated right now. And the ads, I'm so tired of the ads. The ads. All the time, the ads everywhere, always nonstop ads. Um, and then, but I mean, it, they're doing good business because they're doing what I think they should be doing when they're trying to sell their product. They're like, the updated odds as of 30 seconds ago are on your screen right now, like the technology and the odds and everything right there. But the temptation is in front of you always. To your point, you used to have to go to mm-hmm. a dive bar to get like VLT machines and those kind of gambling machines in some of the provinces. And now you used to have to go to the casino, spend your day at the casino, hang out. You know, and now you literally can do it in your bed and never leave your bed. I mean, good economics, and I'm all for capitalism, but I can tell you this it has changed so much. It's so concerning that my son, they used to, before they were 18, they couldn't have their accounts, right? They could only have the mock accounts, the .NET accounts that they advertised. They used to have to advertise the .NET, like mycasino.net. And then when you got there, like it's fake money, but you can practice. And then they could link you to mycasino.com, which was the for money casino. They couldn't advertise the casino, the real casino. And my son and his friends, they went from sports betting as soon as they turned 18. They were more expensive for sports betting than going to the bar. Instead of going, it's scary, right? And so as... 18-year-old young men, 19-year-old young men, they will go to the casino four or five times a week, maybe more, and they don't go to the bar and meet people. They don't go out and go dancing. They do sometimes, but it's probably been in the last few months, um, you know, including some of the more dancey late-night pubs that stay open really late like a bar, probably five or six times through the entire summer. I mean, when I was their age, we were in the bar always going, dancing, drinking. That's what you looked forward to when you turned 18. Go to the bar, not go to the casino, right? He's got friends that are 18 years old that work really hard and are business owners at, at young age, and they make tons of money. But they're dropping four, five, $600 a night, multiple nights of the week in the casino. And I, that worries me. I think that really, really worries me. The access is too easy right now. And the fact that you easy. can't just yeah. bet on, you can bet on the game, you can bet on will Connor McDavid score in the second period and will, I don't know, uh, Austin Matthews score the game winner and all those things. That's fine. That stuff doesn't bug me. But when you can, they call the parlay across multiple games and multiple um, sports, and then there's the instant right? There's 30 seconds left. Are they going to get 60 shots in the next, you know, before the next 30 seconds are up? It's instant. Now, 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 now. Dopamine, dopamine, dopamine. Scary stuff. Sports betting is booming though. I mean, that's an understatement. I think booming is an understatement. As of July, 2021, gambling site DraftKings reached a market capitalization globally, 
$20.64 billion. Now, with all that money comes some very bad decisions. Gambling site DraftKings took heat on social media yesterday for a promotion linking the 9-11 terror attacks to online betting. A featured parlay that briefly appeared on the site inviting users to never forget by betting that all three New York teams playing yesterday, the Jets, Yankees and Mets, would win their games. The promotion was quickly taken down and DraftKings has since apologized. Yeah, they did it. Uh, that's ABC7. The apology. We sincerely apologize. See earlier conversation about <laughs> saying I'm sorry. Well, no, seriously. We, we did a thing on I'm sorry yeah. earlier in the shift, and you can catch it later on on the repeat, or you can catch it on the podcast about saying I'm sorry means I'm sorry. You know, the, there has to be something. How businesses are not apologizing. Businesses are mitigating risk. We sincerely apologize for the featured parlay that was shared briefly in commemoration of 9-11. The company wrote, we respect the significance of this day for our country and especially for the families of those who are directly affected. It wasn't in commemoration of 9-11. It was capitalization of marketing a terrible thing for profit. And they were profiteering mm-hmm. on, on 9-11 is what they were doing. It was nothing to do with commemoration. But that's what happens when you, I think that's exactly what happens when you get blinded by what's in front of you, especially with uh, things like gambling. You know what's even worse? What? People probably bought into that parlay without thinking twice. Oh, I'm I'm sure they did. Even though, uh, yeah, it was not a good bet to have that day. It, like it's, it's it's just no. The, but I mean, I know. The, but the, I would the feel new, the new parlay of the like that they had for those teams for today for for yesterday or yeah. for Monday. Um, yeah. The um that there was somebody who went, oh look at this, I can bet on those three teams. And then without even thinking twice, didn't even think. hit yeah. the bet, right? And without even thinking, because I, I, I'm willing to bet there wasn't many people that maybe there was some, obviously, because it came to light that went, oh, I'm not going to try to make money off this. I mean, some people probably saw it and complained. And thank you for if you're one of the people who saw it and complained. Uh, like, I'm a capitalist. I'm all for you. Go make your money. You do it. But boy, oh, boy, uh, you can't do it. Um, stealing and, and tricking and that stuff. I think that's way uncool. Anyway, whew, it gets me hot. Sports mm-hmm. betting gets me hot, man. Not comfortable with it. Scary stuff. It's a very slippery slope. Um, temptation. Are you okay with... You know, it's even more than... Wait a second. It's even more than um, temptation. It's desperation in a lot of times. Oh, feels like capitalizing yeah, on absolutely. It's a good word for it. Yeah. Um. All right. Are you okay with backyards? I'd love to have a yard one day. One day. I haven't had a yard since I lived at home, and I, I miss it. The patio is great. The deck is awesome, but a yard. Oh uh, yeah, that's the. That's the ticket. Doesn't need to be too big. I don't want to have to spend six hours maintaining it. You know, just a nice enough space to put your feet in the grass, even though I'm allergic to grass. Totally worth it. You're allergic to grass, really? I am very, yeah. I'm allergic to grass and dust, which essentially just means I'm allergic to everything. Uh, as a so, um, yeah. as a hippie at heart, I feel like that's ironic with your love affair for the marijuana. 
I am definitely not allergic to that kind of grass. <laughs> I love backyards. I moved from a townhouse to a house. And having a yard again was the most enjoyable thing of my summer. People say, how was your summer? Did you do anything? And I'm like, not really. I went outside. And I did. That was it. I went outside. I barbecued. I sat outside. I had coffee in the mornings outside. Uh, it was awesome. My daughter's birthday. We did it outside. It was so cool. An NDP MLA on Vancouver Island recently had quite the incident in their backyard. The MLA had to fight off a deer that was attacking their doggo. I came home and uh, found uh, my dog lying in the gravel with a, a full buck on top of him. Adam Walker jumped in, grabbing the deer by the antlers, pulling up its head, allowing Pluto to run free. Buck was just full of adrenaline. I tried a couple of times to release it, hoping it would run away, and it came after me. This would go on for another 20 minutes before help arrived. My neighbor came over. Uh, she hopped in my car, and the two of us, I holding on to the antlers, sort of backed it up, and she with the car gave it little nudges. We got it to to stumble into a ditch, and as soon as it lost its footing, it, uh, it, uh, it, it just carried on. Walker says the deer had been entangled in a nearby tree just before the attack. He had managed to set it free, thinking all was well. I thought I had a moment with this deer, and it, uh, it definitely wasn't the case. The ordeal left Walker with several puncture wounds to his leg. Pluto has opened wounds on his stomach. The BC Conservation Service was called to attend. From what I could see, um, you know, it's, it looked like the deer had been in there all night in that tree. The deer was likely very worked up. And uh, at this time of year, when they're just going into the rut, deer, especially bucks, can be uh, a little more aggressive than usual. Horny. It's actually the word. Um, <laughs> antlers. Get it? Um, you know, of all the things that are perfect in this world, that mother nature, the creator, God, whatever you want to call it, the universe has created. That's the one thing that I don't understand. Okay. Deer or moose, you live in the woods and we're going to give you these giant things on your head that are going to get tangled up everywhere you go. I feel that's bad design. I feel it's the only real bad design of all things in the world. I'm, I'm not quite sure. I mean, maybe defense. I know, like, uh, it's also like mating, you know, like they the bigger the antler, That's the, the easier time mm-hmm. they have attracting me. It's mates. not the size of your antlers, Ryan. It's how you use it. I, I know, I know. But it, it's, uh, I feel like there's a little bit of use in it, and it looks cool. You know, it's, you know, taxidermy would look a lot less cool without the antlers and like the skull. <laughs> that you hang on the wall or like the front of your pickup truck. Those are mm-hmm. way more boring if they don't have cool antlers or horns on them. Horns uh, are just kind of cool. Just send your cool. Um, complaints about taxidermy. It's Ryan at it's the shift.ca. Just so you know, if you, mm-hmm. I'm very, very, very impassioned by taxidermy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was global Kylie stand, by the way, to give Kylie some um, credit for the hard work there. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of crazy. I'm not sure I would be grabbing onto the horns. <laughs> Like they were talking bold about. play, bold play. bold play. Um, Lisa Lopez, program manager for Wild Safe BC, said seasonal change has had an effect on how animals behave. It's fruit season. After months of drought, she said, deer in particular may be roaming further in search of food, although fruit is not a natural source of food for them. <laughs> what rice? 
<laughs> it's fruit really? season. I was like, so really? Be careful. But they actually don't eat fruit. So never mind. They don't. I don't. I don't quite. Yeah. Don't, deer are really dumb creatures, aren't they? I mean, I mm-hmm. like them. But man, they just tend to <laughs> do stupid stuff. Wasn't there a, a shift head video that someone posted of a, a cat scaring the crap out of a deer? There's one of you cat lovers, probably, probably. on the on the page posted a picture of uh, of cats and deers. All right, do we have time? Yeah, we can do. Um, we have time for one more. Yeah, we do. We must. We can do one more. Yeah. All right. Okay. Let's do one more. Are you okay with miniatures? Uh. I, I am. I am. I am a fan of miniatures. I only have one type of miniature because miniatures are an absurdly expensive habit. I met a guy one time who had an army for a board game called Warhammer 40K. And when I asked him how much his army cost, it was $133,000. He had spent over 20 years of playing the game on plastic miniatures, painting them, building them, all of that, transporting them, all of it. But if you ask anybody that is really impassioned or or uh, builds or collects miniatures, it's like their biggest passion. It is the thing they lean into most. For me, I have one thing, Star Wars Legion. It's a miniature game for Star Wars. I have a little droid army. I spent $130 on it. And I haven't had to spend any more uh, wow. money on it. Oh my god! And I've played, I've played that game dozens of times. Totally worth the money. Painting them—that was actually one of the things I did during COVID. I killed probably three months of COVID painting a little droid army, and it was a lot of fun. But it's not a huge hobby for me. I get it, though. I, I think I still lean more in the Lego or trading card side mm. of things on the nerd spectrum. I have to say, after hearing your story and looking up what miniatures are. I had no idea. I, I just thought they were just like little things. Ooh, yeah. I didn't know no. that this was... A store in Calgary where you can go check them out and see how expensive they are. Well, I, the Warhammer store in Chinook Mall. I don't even need to know, actually. I heard plenty so far mm-hmm. <laughs> in this. Um, I get the painting parts cool. I mean, that's all right. You know, painting. Fun. Yeah. I kind of think of Ted Lasso where he gives a little soldier man to people. And that's a miniature, as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, they're used all the time in movies, uh, famously in old Star Wars movies. All wings report in. Red 10 standing by. Red 7 standing by. Red 3 standing by. Red 6 standing by. Red 9 standing by. Red 2 standing by. Red 11 standing by. Red 5 standing by. Lock air spoils in attack position. Now, that particular scene from New Hope features incredible miniatures made by the folks at Industrial Light and Magic. Like the spaceships hanging from strings and all the things they did for that movie. Remarkable. Most of the props uh, they have made have been put in museums or in private collections, but one of those X-Wing fighters from Star Wars has was missing until now. Heritage Auction said the model was long known as the missing X-Wing from Star Wars, until it was found in the collection of Greg Jean, who died last year after a career in miniature making that saw him earn awards and nominations for his work on projects including Star Trek and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The 124 scale miniature was one of four created for filming close-ups in key moments during the famous third-act battle scene in Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. 
It features red stripes on its top two wings, identifying it as a Rebel Alliance Squadron's red leader. Now, this model is going up for auction for the low, low starting bid of $400,000. And one of the bidders is very serious about taking it home. This is a hero. ILM Red One X-Wing model with the opening and closing uh, wings, mounting points, uh, the blaster, its screen matches, the blaster marks, the paint. It is arguably the greatest Star Wars miniature that I've ever seen, perhaps even the greatest Star Wars prop uh, coming up from auction, coming up for auction from the Greg Jean collection. If you bid against me, I will... What? He uh, will kill blank and kill blank. He is very intent on winning that auction. Okay. I have questions, though. So it was missing. So who does it belong to and who's actually auctioning it off? So when the... So this guy who passed away last year, he had it in his collection the whole time. And it's unclear if he... How he got the collection? How he got it? The there is like a paper trail that he w- like got it at the end of the movie and had had it and didn't really tell anybody because it was like his prized possession and he was worried that somebody would try to buy it off of him. And then his estate went up for auction with Heritage. So there is a paper trail, and if you look at this model, okay. so it was it his. Is, it was his, and this was a work. This thing is in a work of art. It is beautiful, and it is absolutely going to go for over a million dollars. I'm almost wow. certain of it. Well, yeah. what occurred to me was okay. So if he stole it, and then it all went for auction, and now the family has <laughs> exposed their their grandpa as a thief, but that's apparently not the case. If there's a paper trail, the the guy uh, swearing and stuff at the end there. That's David Mandel. He's a podcast host, a miniature expert. Um. <laughs> I get it. It's legit. I just find it funny. Uh, the expectation is that this X-Wing is going to get that million dollars, like Ryan said. The most expensive Star Wars memorabilia ever sold is the famous R2-D2 droid from the original trilogy, which went for over $3 million Canadian. So there you go. Miniature expert. I. Oh, yeah. This rabbit hole is a money hole. It's a pit. And it's crazy how much people spend and how much time they put in this stuff if they really care about it. And I'm not sure the movie thing is one other thing. Miniatures and movies is genius. They're you they happen all the time. You never notice. Mm. But collections and all that, a whole nother go all game. Yeah, like I get it if there was four of them and they know there was four of them from the movie. But if it's just like mm-hmm. here's a little soldier man and I painted him blue, I think that I mean good for you for painting it. Enjoy your little soldier man. But that's uh yeah, maybe I maybe I just don't get it. I, I'm gonna I don't I don't get it. And that's okay. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.